Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, please visit our website at www.trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, church. Good morning. The Lord is with you. Richard Foster tells about a time in his life when he was working frantically to finish his doctoral dissertation. And he had a day set aside to work. He had things spread out across his desk. He was working intently, concentrated, making some progress. And his phone rang. He picked up the phone, and it was a friend of his. His friend said, Richard, my wife's gone in our car today, and I have some really important errands to run, and I can't get out. I just wonder, could you possibly come by and pick me up? I need to go to the hardware store and the pharmacy and the supermarket. It's really important that I do those things, and I really need some help. Could you help me out? And Richard was kind of felt trapped by that. He wished he hadn't answered the phone. But he reluctantly and sort of resentfully agreed to come help his friend out. So he left his work, and as he was walking out of the house, he picked up a little book that he had been reading in devotionally by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a book called Life Together. It's about life in Christian community, how Christians live with each other, how we're supposed to live with each other. And he said, maybe I'll get a few minutes to read while I'm gone at least. And so they set out, he set out. And he took his friend to the hardware store, and then he took him across town to the pharmacy. And then they went to the supermarket, and his friend got out of the car. He said, Richard, this is the last stop I need to make, and I'll be back in a few minutes. And Richard said, I'll just wait in the car. So the guy left, and Richard's still feeling kind of angry at himself and all of this and wishing he could get his work done. And he opened the book. It was marked where he had last been reading. And he opened up and began to read. And this was the first paragraph that caught caught his eye. The second service that one should perform for another in Christian community is that of active helpfulness. This means initially simple assistance in trifling external matters. There's a multitude of these things wherever people live together. Nobody is too good for the lowest service. One who worries about the loss of time that such petty outward acts of helpfulness entail is usually taking the importance of his own career too solemnly. Now, sometimes the Lord has a way of just pricking you right where you need to be pricked at the right time, doesn't he? Uh, The Lord has a way of doing that. And what Richard Foster said he was learning at that moment is that Service is inherently a part of what it means to live together. We serve one another. And it's inherently a part of what it means to be a pilgrim on this path of following after Jesus Christ. For the last several weeks, we've been looking at these pilgrim psalms, the psalms of ascent, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. And each one has something to tell us about what we need to successfully make our way along this road following after Jesus Christ, being transformed into the image of Christ, becoming more like Christ. Psalm 121 reminded us that God never sleeps. His eyes always upon us. His providential care oversees our lives, and we can trust our life into the maker of heaven and earth. We never escape his sight. And Psalm 131 last week reminded us that uh, when our souls are noisy, that They can be quieted by resting in God as a child rests on the breast of her mother. Resting in God like the weaned child, he said. 
And this morning, I want us to turn to Psalm 123, because it tells us that one of the things that is necessary as we travel along this pilgrim road together is that we learn to serve one another humbly and faithfully. It says that is part of the image of being shaped to be like Christ. And it's not just that we serve, but actually that we become servants. And there's a real distinction to be made there. Let's read that psalm together. It's only four verses long, and we can read it together. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. As the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than its fill of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. One practice that we can refine as we learn the life of pilgrims, disciples following after Jesus on the way, is what it means to legitimately, authentically be servants of God. There's an inauthentic kind of service that we can offer one another or offer God, and it's inauthentic because it's not really a surrender at all. We give service. We decide who we serve or whom we serve. We decide when we serve. We decide where we serve, how often we serve, how long we serve, and to what end we serve. In other words, even though we're serving, we're still remaining in control, aren't we? That's, a, that's different than being a servant. A servant is someone who has surrendered control and is at the beck and call of his or her master. That's a different kind of thing. When we become a servant of God in relation to him, we give up the the right to decide whom we serve, when we serve, where we serve, how often, how long, and to what end. We remain at God's disposal. It's a different kind of relationship. Psalm 123 is not a rule book about how to serve, but it's more like a portrait of what a servant looks like and what a servant's posture is and what a servant's motivation is. It helps us understand what authentic service looks like as we make our way down this road following after Christ, being formed into his image. The psalm says that authentic servanthood begins with a particular posture, our relationship to God, an upward look to God. Verses 1 and 2 say, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. As the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. Picture, imagine someone bowing before God who is the maker of heaven and earth, the Lord of all creation, enthroned in heaven and earth, who is truly God, bowing before God in worship and adoration and submission and saying, God, whatever you ask of me, I'm willing to give to you. You think that it would be obvious that God is God and we are not, that God is Lord and we are servant. That should be an obvious thing. But I'm afraid it's not sometimes to us. It's kind of easy uh, in especially sort of popular Christianity to get the idea that somehow God is our servant. 
We may read prayer promises like Jesus' words to his disciples. Ask whatever you will in my name and I will give it to you. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be made full. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. It could be easy to think that God is some sort of genie in a bottle that we summon to our aid whenever we want some help. God is there to help us along when the burden gets too heavy. God is there to be our, our help, our servant, and we just call on when we need him and we don't need him, we ignore him. It's sort of easy to think of Christianity as a kind of a magical kind of thing, and that is to totally misunderstand what this is all about. At its heart, our faith is about a relationship to God in which God is God and we are God's servants. We submit to God because God is a God of mercy and love. We'll talk about it in a little bit. He, he cares for our needs and he responds to our needs. But we are there to serve God and not the other way around. To you, I lift up my eyes, O you who are thrown, enthroned in the heavens. Uh, we are... Uh, to remember that the God we worship and serve is the God of creation and providence, the God of the exodus and the empty tomb, the God of Sinai and Calvary, the God who is in charge of all things in the universe. And we have been called into relationship with him as sons and daughters, but also as servants. And so it's appropriate for us to lift our, up our eyes to him, as the psalmist says, like a servant lifts up eyes to the master, like a maiden lifts up eyes to her mistress. So we lift our eyes up to the one who is enthroned in heaven. We become God's servant. Sometimes it's easy to think of God as sort of the operator of a great big heavenly bureaucracy that taking care of things and we have needs in our lives and so we come to one of the local franchises like a Baptist church and uh, try to get the help of one of the God's agents like a, a pastor or somebody and uh, to get our needs met and that's not what this is about. We hope that by doing the right rituals in the right form somewhere along the line God's going to meet our needs but that's not the way it works. The way it works and the way we want it to work, if we're honest, is that God is God. And if God is God at all, then we are by definition God's servants. We are called to submission. The correct posture is to lift our eyes to the Lord as a slave to his master, as a maid to her mistress. And authentic service to God gets that right initially. I lift up my eyes to the one enthroned to the heavens. Once we have that relationship right, once that posture is the way we live with God, we're in a position to offer authentic service to God, as we'll see we do that by serving one another. Uh, it is we who are at God's beck and call because he is Lord and not the other way around. The posture is where it starts. And the psalmist says that authentic service is motivated by the experience of mercy. We can't order God around or put him in a box or control him because God is God and we are not. But we can expect God, we can know what he's like, and we can expect him to respond according to that nature of himself he's revealed to us. When we lift our eyes to him, we can expect his mercy and his grace. The psalmist says, we lift up our eyes to the Lord until he has mercy on us. He knows what to expect from the Lord. This is a merciful, loving God who cares about us in the 
tiny degrees of our life. And then he prays, have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy on us. Three times in the psalm, the psalmist comes back to this experience of God's mercy and grace. Lord, we lift our eyes to you till we experience your mercy. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy. He knows exactly what to expect from the hand of God. And that is God's love and God's mercy. Our assumptions about God, our, our theology, if you will, has an impact upon the way we pray, upon the way we think about God, about the way we worship God, the way we approach God, about what we expect of God. And I wonder, if you were totally honest, what, what do you assume to be true about God when God looks intently on your life, your life in particular? When he focuses attention on you, which he does all the time, by the way, what do you think is God's response? What does God think when he looks at you? Suppose he says, Ugh, if you just clean up your life, if you kind of get your act together, maybe we could get along. Is that what God thinks about you? What if God's response to us every single time his attention focuses on us, which it never ceases to do? What if God's attitude toward us and response to us is what Psalm 103 says, as a father has compassion or loves his children, so the Lord has compassion. He loves those who fear him. What if God looked at your life and his very first initial response without any, anything in between was just pure love? What if we assume that to be the case? I think the psalmist assumes that. Some years ago, I enjoyed a book by a woman named Roberta Bondi. It was called In Ordinary Times. And she had an interesting perspective on this question about how does God look on us? And when God's attention is focused on us, what is God's response? She said, my first theological assumption, an assumption about prayer, is this. Before anything else, and above all else, and beyond everything else, God loves us. God loves us extravagantly, ridiculously, without limit or condition. God is in love with us. God is besotted with us. God yearns for us. God does not love us in spite of who we are or for whom he knows we can become. God loves us hopelessly as mothers love their babies. God loves us, the very people we are. Not only that, but even against what we ourselves sometimes find plausible, God likes us, she said. Think of it. We were created by God's hand. You were. I was. We were created out of God's heart, and God at his very essence is love. Everything he has created is an expression of his love. He created you and me in his image by his hand. We are not despicable to him. Can you imagine a parent holding an infant child for a moment, thinking anything else except this child is beloved? Not in spite of what it is right now, not because of what it can become sometime, but because of who it is right now. This child created out of my body, out of my love, this child is nothing short of precious. And, and that's the way we must assume God thinks of us when God focuses attention on us, that God loves us greatly, deeply. Uh, for who we are right now. What if God responded to us in that way? And I think he does. The message of scripture is that first and foremost and beyond everything else, 
God loves us. And when the psalmist says, I lift my eyes up to the one enthroned in the heavens, like a slave lifts his eyes to his master or a maiden lifts her eyes to her mistress until I know your mercy. He expects God's mercy to fall, God's love to be present in that moment. And that is the motivation for becoming God's servant. We don't serve God out of fear. We don't serve God out of hoping to build up a credit account with God so that someday when we need to cash it in, God owes us something. And that's not the way service works. We serve because we've been loved. We serve because we've received mercy. That's what we're to expect of God, and it is the appropriate motivation for authentic service. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, in the good old King James Version, it says, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies living sacrifices, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Our service reasonably flows from the fact that the mercies of God have been poured out on our lives. And because his mercy has been so great, our service is called to be great and sacrificial. We don't just serve, we become God's servants. That's the motivation. He loves us, he is God, and if he's God at all, he's certainly worthy of the service that we bring to him. How does God look upon us when we fail, when we've sinned, when there's wrongdoing in our life, when we've wandered astray? And the scripture gives us a little bit of insight into that in one place in Jeremiah chapter 18, where Jeremiah is sent to the potter's house and Israel, the nation, has sinned and failed and is under judgment. And Jeremiah is instructed to watch the potter at work and the potter forms a, a vessel and it, if the potter discerns there's a flaw in it, he, he crushes it and brings it back to life again and until it looks the way he wants it to look. He doesn't abandon the project. And in the same sort of way, though there is always failure and sin and wrong thinking and wrongdoing in our lives, God doesn't abandon us or look upon us as something despicable. He just stays with the project and shapes us and forms us till we bear his likeness one day. Those two things come together, this posture that looks to God as Lord and Master and waits for his mercy, and the experience of mercy that motivates us to service, uh, that's what makes us into authentic servants of God. Uh, and we express that service by serving one another. In verses 3 and 4, the psalmist uh, expresses this. We are tired of serving earthly masters. We're tired of serving those that we've been serving. We're tired of being treated with contempt and arrogance and being stepped on by those who are in power over us. We're ready to change our loyalty and give ourselves to a new master. Our eyes look to you, O Lord, who are enthroned in heaven and acknowledge that you are our master. That's what he's saying. We're tired of serving those that hold us in contempt and those that abuse us in any way. Human beings know a lot about servitude and slavery. It's been built into the fabric of human existence, I suppose, ever since there were more than a handful of people on the earth, that those with power exercise power over others. It's built into the way that humans treat one another. 
And at times in our history, it's even been built into our society, the fabric of it as an institution. We may have gotten away from the institution of slavery in our society, but we still know individually a lot what it means to be on the receiving end of somebody else's expression of power. And sometimes their contempt for us, they're using us in one way or another. And even if we don't know that firsthand, we do know what it is to find ourselves trapped uh, enslaved in service to some addiction or habit or practice in our life that we just can't seem to get rid of. There's so many ways that our liberty is taken away from us in the world. And the psalmist says, Lord, I don't want to serve any of those things or people anymore. I lift my eyes to you. You are my Lord. You are my master. And freedom is found in serving you. Um, Probably most of you in this room are old enough to remember Bob Dylan. Um, he's still around. Uh, some years ago, he released an album uh, that was a reflective of his newly found Christian faith. And he had a song on there called, You Gotta Serve Somebody. And uh, the line in there was, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you gotta serve somebody. I do it in my Bob Dylan voice, but that probably wouldn't be appropriate. <laughs> The fact is we were made to be servants and we will either give our life in service to God and find freedom in that or we will find ourselves serving something, someone else, something that will ultimately destroy us. Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that we are uh, either servants of sin or we are servants of God, one or the other. But we do not escape being servants. The psalmist says... I'm choosing to serve the Lord. My eyes lift up to him who is enthroned in the heavens. I'm going to be a servant of God. And it's out of that that we serve a better master with a more authentic kind of service. Acknowledging God is God and we are not. And God's mercy or motivation for service. Authentic service is different from the kind of self-righteous service that we sometimes offer to God. Inauthentic service is always interested in rewards and applause and recognition, the limelight. But authentic service is often hidden without any attention being drawn to it whatsoever. Jesus told the parable of what he called the unworthy servants. He said, which servant, work, having worked out in the field all day long, serving his master, comes in at night and expects dinner to be on the table. I said, no, uh, you come in and you keep serving the master. The servant comes in and prepares the dinner for the master and says, we are only unworthy servants. We are unworthy servants, but our God is a God who's poured mercy out upon us out of his own goodness. Self-righteous service can be discriminating. We can choose to serve those that we deem to be below us in some way, or we can choose to serve those that we might think are above us, but we're doing it out of the motivation of what's best for me. Uh, what do I get out of it when it's inauthentic service? Authentic service just responds to God. It doesn't matter who we've been asked to serve. All that matters is that God has directed us to serve. Inauthentic service has a lot of moods and whims about it. I feel like it or I don't feel like it, so I offer myself and to God in service. But authentic service isn't motivated by our moods or whims. It's motivated by the direction of God and the needs that are at hand. Inauthentic service is kind of an ad hoc thing we do. We give ourselves on this occasion or that occasion, and sometimes in between we do pretty much as we please. 
But authentic service, becoming a servant, makes us available to God 24 hours a day, seven days a week, anytime, any place. We become servants of the Lord. Inauthentic service, and maybe this is the biggest distinction, is choosing to serve and thus maintaining control. I decide. I give myself to God to serve when I choose, where I choose, how I choose, whom I choose, and to what end I choose. But authentic service is about becoming a servant and being available to God who is master. Jesus gave us a really clear way to express our service to God. How do you serve an invisible God? Jesus made it pretty clear. We do it with the second commandment. We love one another. We care for one another. We drive one another to the pharmacy and the hardware store and the grocery store, even when we have something else more important to do because we're servants of God. Jesus said, inasmuch as you do any act of service to those in need in your world, I receive it as service to me. You become servants of God by serving one another. When we are servants of God, we are serving others because we've become servants of God. It's a very different thing than just being a do-gooder, going around trying to meet needs. Not that that's a bad thing to do, but that's not necessarily service to God. Service to God is expressed to others out of a relationship with God first and foremost. We're available to him to serve as he calls on us. But that's the order. We are servants of the Lord who express our servanthood by serving others. We don't earn favor with God when we serve our fellow man or fellow woman. We serve others by responding to God. We have given God our consent and said, call my number anytime, knock on my door at any hour. I'm available to you to serve whomever, whenever, wherever, however, for however long. That's who I am in relationship to you. So here we are on this pilgrimage. We're making our way through this life. And the psalmist says to us, one of the songs you all need to learn to sing together is a song that recognizes that God is God and we are not, that we are servants and available to God at any time, and that the God we serve is the God of great mercy, who has no contempt for us, who does not wish to abuse us in any way, but whose mercies motivate us to serve him freely and fully as we serve one another. He's watching over us and never sleeps. He's like a mother who takes us into his arms and holds us and quiets our soul. And he is the one enthroned in heaven and earth whom we serve like a slave looks to his master or a maid looks to her mistress. We receive his mercy and we serve one another. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we ask that you would, in your mercy, forgive and just forget about all those times we've offered you service inauthentically to earn something or to be noticed or out of fear or out of guilt. And Lord, we pray that as we make this journey together, you, you would help us to learn simply to look to you, to lift our eyes to you. And as we meet your eyes of mercy, we pray, God, that we would freely give ourselves to declare that love and mercy through service to others, to one another in the smallest ways and the, the biggest ways. Whatever you ask of us, whatever you demand of us, we want to affirm, God, today that we're available to you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church, please visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.